This episode of The First Feature is sponsored by Musicbed. Welcome to The First Feature, a No Film School podcast. My name is Ryan Koo. I'm the founder of No Film School. And my first feature is titled Amateur. Amateur is out there right now on Netflix. You can go watch it now. Every episode of the first feature covers a different stage of filmmaking from screenwriting to prep to production to release. If you have any questions about your own feature, you can email them to firstfeature at nofilmschool.com or find me on Twitter at Ryan B. Koo. This is episode four, pitching, finding a producer, and financing. Okay, so I'm here with Liz Nord from No Film School. Hello. And we are, this is the first episode that we're actually recording since the movie has come out because we've tried to get ahead of ourselves sometimes. And uh, yeah, it's out there in the world. It's very exciting. We, uh, we came to your theatrical premiere here in New York the night before the Netflix release happened. And it was just such, a, such an enthusiastic crowd. And, you know, you're on your home turf here. And we were all rooting for you uh, for all these years. And it was so exciting. Ryan, congratulations. The film is out there. Thank you. Yeah, it was great to be able to do that because my lead actor, Michael Rainey Jr., was 15 when we shot the movie. And and to have him be up there on stage and to get a round of applause and to get questions. And, uh, you know, I can't imagine not having done that. We, We had also done a screening at Netflix in L.A., but Michael is based here in New York, so he wasn't able to be there. Um, so it was nice to, to be able to do two screenings back to back, go through that experience, and then just put it out in 190 countries. <laughs> yeah. Now the rest of us can kind of learn from your experiences through this podcast, you know, what the seven years leading up to this big moment were like. From what I can remember, yeah. I mean, some of it is so long ago that, uh, you know, I have to go back and look at the notes that I kept throughout the process. Um, but this is this is a really interesting episode uh, because it's it's sort of like the the pre prep. It's the prep to the prep, and that can really really drag on. And it's also usually the difference between getting a movie made and not. So it's a little bit amorphous because it's not pre production per se, but there's so many things that. Uh, transpired during this phase so I'm excited to talk about it yeah I mean the first couple episodes you of this of this series we've sort of delved into your really early process and part of that was making your short amateur which eventually became the feature amateur and you know I think these days more films are being financed by uh, the crowdfunding platforms than by the National Endowment of the Arts in this country, and you had done one for the short amateur, right? No, no, the Kickstarter was for the feature. Okay, so. And we uh, we made the short with grant money from Tribeca, specifically because I'd already done, and that's sort of why we're doing these episodes out of order, is because I did things out of order, so we're, we're, we're trying to sort of retcon the correct order that most people would make a, a, a feature project in. Um, but I had done a, a Kickstarter for the feature film, and then I made a short to help us get additional financing using Tribeca grant money. But the Kickstarter campaign itself was for the feature, and it was one of the first things that I did on this project. Um, I don't know that most people should do a Kickstarter that early. The reason that I did one in that early phase was that I had been selected for an IFP program, and they were going to be reading the first 15 pages of the script on stage. And it was going to be listed publicly in their emerging narrative program. And so the fact that the project was getting out there, I thought, okay, that's a good time because it's already going public to then publicize and run a Kickstarter campaign. Well, and I think for for a lot of first-time filmmakers, it's really difficult to get that first grant because you have nothing to prove yourself with. And so Kickstarter has been a great way early on to say, you know, hey, I can rally a crowd. People are excited about this idea. And it can be those really initial funds. So it wasn't that unusual. Yeah, exactly. I think actually, beyond the financing part of running a Kickstarter, that's exactly what it should be, is a proof of concept and a way to 
build an audience around you. And it's the kind of thing that if you have the right motivations to do it, you should be doing it regardless of the amount of financing and regardless of the amount that that can help you make the project. It's the putting yourself out there part. It's the audience aggregation. It's it's being able to uh, sort of test your idea. And in some cases, if your Kickstarter campaign failed, then maybe that's a good test and maybe you need to pivot and try something different. Um, so it's a really great thing to do, but I don't think it's for everybody because you it's so much work and it's not just the number of days that you run a Kickstarter campaign. You have to be aware of what you're taking on for the life of your project. Not only do you fulfill rewards when you're finally finished with it and most Kickstarter campaigns hopefully don't take as long as mine did, but you're also now in constant contact with your backers and with your audience and their expectations. And when pitfalls come your way, you're going to hear about it. And going off to make your own first feature by yourself is hard enough. When you have an announced project and there are expectations and delivery dates that you were hoping to hit, now you have an additional layer of expectations. And if you have thousands of backers, as I do, all it takes is something to go wrong for one person. If you're fulfilling a reward, now you're doing tech support for 2,000 people. <laughs> you know, there's a whole lot of extra work that you either that you need to be inspired to take on yourself to see it through the entire process, or that you need other people on your team to be able to help you with. Um, you know, once once you go past the the financing part, the, the fundraising part of the Kickstarter. Well, that's actually a great segue because. You know, we should point out that your campaign was actually extremely successful in those early Kickstarter days. I think it was one of the most successful of all time. I remember that they would sort of trot you out as a success story in the industry, right? Kickstarter has changed a lot since then. This was 2011. And so raising $125,000 for what was then called Manchild, which is now called Amateur, it was the most successful narrative film on Kickstarter at the time. But then, of course, Zach Braff came along and Spike Lee came along and people have raised millions since. But it was certainly a, a really large undertaking and a really inspiring experience that we've we've dived into uh, more in depth. I did a podcast at Sundance in 2016 with Dan Schoenbrunn, who was at the time Kickstarter's film lead and now is a producer himself. So um, if you really want to dive into to Kickstarter, that episode is called Running a Kickstarter campaign, here's what you should think about before and after. Um, you and I are kind of going to use it as part of the process, but we're not going to do an entire other episode on Kickstarter. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. So we can send you all to to listen to that sort of in-depth episode because Kickstarter has become such a pivotal part of fundraising. In this episode of the first feature, we're going to get more into um, other kinds of prep and more traditional financing. But just to kind of wrap up the Kickstarter idea, are there some bigger takeaways that you can can give about like what people should expect when running a Kickstarter campaign, when they should run it, you know, that kind of stuff? I think you should run it once you have other people that can help you. It was really an insane amount of work for me at that stage. I didn't have a producer attached. There was nobody else on the project. So even just something like filming your campaign video that was a camera on a tripod in my backyard that I was hoping was in focus. You know, like I didn't even have anybody to help me with that. And and by the time you finish your, your Kickstarter page with the video and figuring out your reward levels and writing it and images and all of that, your work is just beginning. Mm -hmm. You're hitting launch. And if you're going into that already exhausted and tired, it's going to be really hard to do all of the audience outreach. Um, I would say that one of the things that a Kickstarter campaign can be really helpful for, and when I say Kickstarter, of course, you can use other Indiegogo, GoFundMe, Seed and Spark. Spark. Yeah. There, there are many other platforms. And in my case, I'd use Kickstarter. I think that the all or nothing financing was a really helpful motivator uh, where if people know that you're not going to make anything, if you don't hit your goal at the end, that can be a, a, a motivating factor. One of the things that I think is really helpful in doing any kind of crowdfunding campaign is identifying your audience. And the beginning of your campaign will be your family and friends. But then 
for this to be a successful Kickstarter campaign or for it to be a successful film, you've got to have a much larger audience than just your friends that are going to show up and support you in your work. So for us, what was really helpful was reaching out to the basketball community and the winningest NBA coach of all time, Phil Jackson. His girlfriend at the time was Jeannie Buss, who's the Los Angeles Lakers executive. She saw it on Twitter, and then she backed it with Phil. And that really helped us to talk about the narrative of the project with the target audience and to build a coalition around the project that was able to, you know, for, that, that helped us hit that goal that we hit. And that's the same audience for the movie. So it's a good testing ground. And, um, you know, those, those contacts that you make in that process are going to be helpful when it comes time to release the movie because somebody was there at the beginning, they're in the world you're trying to reach, and then now when you're finished the movie and you're putting it out there, you can follow up with them and they are your advocate. Yeah, and I think building that community early, especially if you have a long-term project, can really help your own sort of motivation as you go along, knowing that there are people out there that support you, they might not even know you. It also brings to mind another um, great tip I've heard over the years when you mentioned that, of course, your initial backers are going to be your friends and family. You don't just want to hit them with the campaign the day you launch it. Ideally, you'll have a core circle of people who are on board ahead of time that are going to donate on the first day so that it looks like your campaign is gaining momentum early and that you know that they're going to tweet about it. You've given them language to use. They're sort of like your your support team in this. I'll also mention that I did for uh, my documentary Battle for Jerusalem, I did an Indiegogo campaign. So to your point about there being all sorts of options, although the motivating factor of Kickstarter with a deadline is so great for some projects, I felt for me, I needed the money no matter what. And so I went with Indiegogo because at Indiegogo, you you do get to keep whatever amount you raise. And that was helpful. Um, but, you know, I, I each of these platforms has uh, its own set of benefits. So I recommend those of you listening to definitely look around, understand the benefits and detractors for, for all of the crowdfunding platforms before you decide which one to go with. Right. I mean, Seed and Spark is its own distribution platform as well. So depending on what you're looking to do with the movie at the end, if, if you think your backers are going to be an integral part of your audience itself, that may be a, a place worth looking for. Um, yeah, there's a lot of platforms. And I'm sure a lot has changed since 2011 when I did my campaign. Well, one of the good thing that's good things that's changed is that there are so many more resources out there for how to run a successful campaign. A lot of them you can find on our own site, nofilmschool.com. So not that I'll be just plugging the nice site plug, the whole time, nice but hey, you know, it's, that's a great way, place to do it because it's, it's really true. Um, so in a way, I, I see the, the Kickstarter and crowdfunding as your pitch kind of like to your audience, to the world. But pitching is this huge part of, of making a film that starts really early on and kind of goes all the way through. So should we talk a little bit about, about the pitching process? Yeah, let's talk about pitching. That's a, that's a sigh. Why do we hear a sigh? Oh, because I was pitching for so long. I mean, of the seven-year life cycle of this project, five years of it was pitching. So, um, yeah, it's like I don't even know where to, where to begin. And, and certainly the way that I pitched the beginning was different than the way I pitched later. And then, you're, you know, you're not just pitching producers and financiers and studios. You're, you're pitching actors, and it's, just, it's so, it's so all-encompassing. Where should we start? It's a great question. I mean, since we are in the, since we're talking about those pre-pre-production steps, who were some of the kind of first people that you had to pitch to? Sure. Once again, IFP, and we've talked about other organizations similar to IFP, depending on where you're located. Part of what these organizations can do is make introductions. And if they've selected your project, they're giving you a certain amount of credibility and approval someone is pointing a finger at your project and saying, this is worthwhile. And therefore, you're not just out there saying, hey, you know, raising, raising your hand saying, hey, will you please come meet with me? So IFP made a bunch of introductions. And at many of these organizations, what they will do is they essentially set up speed dating among potential writer directors and producers or financiers, right? It's the industry meets the creative. And these are very often just 20-minute or 30-minute meetings 
and a room full of tables and you're just jumping from pitch to pitch to pitch. But it's a great way to meet people very quickly. And that was where I started. The mistake I made was that I started doing that. I had timed my Kickstarter campaign to conclude during Independent Film Week, which is when all these pitches take place because I I felt like, oh, I'll have some momentum. But of course, you're in a room with 20 other people. You can't be on the internet pushing your project. So it was actually a case of just uh, horrible timing on my part. But it seems like a sound idea. And maybe that's sort of an encapsulation of uh, why we're doing this podcast, because the things that you think might be a great idea in advance turn out to be otherwise, and then you learn, and then hopefully I can share those things on this podcast so that someone else doesn't make the same mistake, which is don't schedule your Kickstarter campaign to be concluding and you know during some time where you need to be busy doing something else, and, and you can't promote it online and in the real world at the exact same time. Um, so yeah, th- way, those those were the initial pitches. Here's another one along those lines: is is you may think that it would be a good idea to do your crowdfunding during the holidays because people are like feeling generous. Oh no, not true. Yeah, people need to spend their money on their gifts for grandma, and they don't want to support your project. So also during the holidays, they're spending time with grandma. They're not on their email. They're not on their device. They're not uh, getting your updates until they come back to the office. So don't let grandma mess up your crowdfunding campaign, folks. Okay, back to pitching. So um, I don't know if you, if you remember at this point, because that was a while back, but in those early stages, you're sort of getting two kinds of feedback. You're getting feedback on the project, but you're probably getting some feedback on the pitch or starting to recognize maybe at what point in your pitch people's eyes glaze over. So do you remember kind of some of the ways you refined your early pitch? Definitely the eyes glazing over is the best immediate feedback you'll get. Um, I think really I learned that pitching in the room is a different skill, of course, than screenwriting. But the pitch is really, if someone hasn't read your screenplay, and in many cases they don't want to do that first because that's two hours of their time, they want to, they'd prefer to just come meet with you, hear about the project, have you hype it up and talk about its potential and really get to know you as a person. How are you in a room? Are you somebody that they want to spend potentially years of their life with? I mean, producing a movie is potentially years of work and you're going to be spending a lot of time in, if it's an independent film, not very nice hotels and cars and the amount of time you're going to spend with this person, it's like you're taking on a family member. So a lot of times what a producer is looking for is just to get to know you are you somebody that they think is going to go somewhere that's going to see this project through that they could spend time around? And then the script is sort of the second thing. So you may be able to ace the first step, but even if you ace that, the second thing is really what they're going to look at and then either respond to, give you notes, or most often in my experience, just ghost you. Oh, so in a way, a pitch is like your way to get someone to then take the step of spending time to read your script. Exactly. You're essentially sitting down on a first date with somebody, essentially, and then you're asking for two more hours or or 90 minutes of their time for free when they have a stack of other scripts on their desk. Um, So they're going to ask you a lot of questions, and I think it's great to have all those answers, but really... I look at a pitch, a good pitch, as more of a conversation. If you're talking a lot and they're just sitting there listening and nodding, I don't think that's a great pitch. I think you want to get through the basics really early. Essentially the log line, what this movie feels like, what you're planning on doing visually, maybe what some comparisons are, what kind of cast you envision, some of the basics. But you want to open it up and turn it into a conversation that's interactive and that's lively as soon as possible so that there's not a set order that you're just going through like a car salesman or something. So to that point, did you do research of the people you're going to be pitching to so you knew how to kind of engage them? Ideally, yes. If you're in one of these sort of more speed dating environments where you have 20 pitches in a day, you can't necessarily do as much of that. And I would make notes and do a really cursory search about them. But you can't really go in depth as opposed to something where maybe this is a really big pitch that you've built up to and you've had time to research them and all of those things. In some cases, that's part of the conversation. 
is just getting to know them. And, and I would say the pitch, is, the pitch is two ways. One is, of course, they are sitting across from you and they know the industry generally. They know that most movies fail to make their money back, fail to find an audience, and fail to get made. So <laughs> they're already sort of evaluating you, but you also need to be evaluating them and understanding what their motivation is, what position they occupy, what kind of power they have? Does their company have financing? Can they even make this movie? Are they even a producer? A lot of times you'll be getting meetings from people that are interested in your project, but they might be more interested from the level of tracking you, or which is something that a sales agent will do so they can put it on their board, and if it's going to festivals, then they'll have read it early and they can know whether to prioritize it and things like that. You as a writer-director at this early stage, you just need a producer that's going to be the person in your corner. So in some cases, if somebody is not explicitly looking to help you get this project to the next phase and get it made, it may not even make sense to send them the script. You might just be having a meeting and saying, okay, that was cool. Let me put them in my contacts. I can follow up down the road, but I don't want to just do what, there's a line in the movie Amateur, spray and pray. That's what you don't want to do. You don't want to meet with 50 people and then send the script to 50 people. You want to be more targeted with it. And just as as you're pitching them, they also need to pitch you a little bit on what their company is and what they're looking to do and why they're a good fit for your project. I'd love to actually talk more specifically about what you want to look for in a producer, because I think it's a good point to, to, to bring up, like, it's not just what can you do for them. It's like you you're also going to be in bed with this person. You need to make sure you can spend time with them. But... I have a couple more questions specifically about the pitching part first, if you don't mind. Sure. So when you came to the table, like you obviously have some, you know, pitch points prepared that you're going to say you have the screenplay done. Was there anything else you did for like proof of concept? Over time, I, I did a lot more. Early on at IFP originally in 2011, I had just completed a draft of the script to submit to that. Uh, independent film week so I didn't have many materials early but over time you know I think you just have to do everything you can this is an incredibly difficult undertaking and there's somebody on the other side of the room who's done everything they probably have more experience than you do and if you don't want to do those things then I think your script on its own is not going to be as fully realized in the producer or whoever you're pitching to's head as somebody who has done a lot of these additional things. So the things that most people will do at some point that I did include, you can do a lookbook, which is stills from uh, photography, from art, from other movies, anything that's going to give you a visual representation of what you want your movie to look like and to feel like. You can do a multimedia video version of that, also called a ripomatic where you're just taking scenes from other TV shows and movies and cutting them together uh, to, to talk about your visual representation of the material. You can do a pitch packet, which is a PDF usually, which has your resume, some project highlights, maybe a link to the lookbook. If you have other people on board the project, whether it's cast or producers or whoever it may be, your director of photography, editor, those kind of people, you put that in the packet so that when you send somebody something, it's not just the script on its own, it's all of it together makes it feel more fully realized. Just like scouting, filming, and editing, having great music should be an asset to your film, not a roadblock. Musicbed is dedicated to making that a reality. That's why they've completely rebuilt their platform of over 650 world-class artists and composers with brand new features, workflows, and checkout process. Want to exclude holiday songs from your search in July? Go for it. Need a folk song that has a guitar but no banjos at 120 beats per minute? No problem. With advanced search features like include, exclude, beats per minute, key, song build, and more, finding the perfect song has never been easier or faster. Get 20% off your next on-site license with coupon code FIRSTFEATURE20. Learn more at musicbed.com new. Again, that's coupon code FIRSTFEATURE20.
So this might be a tough one, but we've been talking about the really early stages. I'm kind of wondering, do you have any estimate at this point of like how many pitches you gave over the life of this project? It's probably kind of insane. I actually know exactly how many pitches I gave. Ooh. Because when I went to IFP, this this actually wasn't my first rodeo. I had gone to IFP in a couple of years earlier with the transmedia project I talked about on an earlier episode with my co-director on that, Zach Lieberman. And I learned a lot about the process of going through this speed dating and then coming out the other side and saying, wait, who said what? Who am I following up with? Who am I prioritizing? And losing track of those things. Coming back around a second time, I was much more organized. So I didn't realize, of course, that over five years, there were going to be so many pitches. But even from the beginning, I wanted to keep track of who these people were and what they were interested in and what if they had said yes, if they'd said no, if they'd said send me the script. So what what I did is I started using customer relationship management software, which is something that salespeople use when they're cold calling because their hit rate, a salesperson's hit rate to sell something generally from cold calling is so low that it's actually probably pretty similar to a filmmaker's hit rate for actually getting their movie made with somebody. So like a Salesforce kind of software? Yeah, exactly like Salesforce, but in this case, I wasn't going to sign up for some enterprise-level platform, so I used a thing called Streak, which was a plug-in for Gmail. That way it could integrate. And I created different phases, just like a salesperson creates a sales funnel. I put people into a category that was pitched to these people, and then I'd put them in you know, follow-up or interested not interested, and eventually at the end of the sales funnel was attached. And so I can go back now and look at that and see exactly how many people there are in there. And I pitched this movie over the course of five years to 80 different producers and production companies. And Netflix was the 80th. Wow. So I I have, and it's not to say that everybody said no. You know, Chip, for example, my first producer, which we'll talk about in a second, attaching him, He's in that. So I guess it was 78 no's, not 79. <laughs> you know, um, But I can look at that and say, these are all the different people that I took it to, and these are the people that said yes or no. And then some people are interested but don't necessarily have the wherewithal. They might not have the financing. You know, They might not really be able to move the needle for the project. But yeah, so it was 80 pitches over five years, and I kept that very organized <laughs> using sales software. Wow, it's like a lot to process right now. That's, I mean, hopefully, most people don't have to go through that. But it's instructive because I think that people do, and actually, I see also a lot of value in having this this um, documentation now. Because maybe for your next project, some of those people who weren't interested in amateur, you can revisit your, let's say, spreadsheet and say, oh, but this person was interested in uh, teen dramas, and that's what I'm working on next. And great, I've got that info. Exactly. Like it wasn't time wasted. No, and I think that's part of what the opportunity at these pitches is, is you're not just pitching your project, you're pitching yourself. And if they remember you and say, this person was really dotted their I's and crossed their T's and knew their project inside and out and was charismatic and had a presence in a room and, you know, I believe in this person, even if I don't, even if my company doesn't have a mandate to make that kind of film, even if we're not working at that budget level, even if we're not looking for stories about that, even if we've already made something that's similar, they, you're, you're, you're making a, a contact that this is a pretty small industry and those contacts can come back around for your next film or even just make introductions uh, if it's not right for them to somebody else. So absolutely you want to keep track of everybody you've met with, make some notes about what they're looking for, what areas they're working in, because you might have an uh, idea in the future that is perfect for them, and really just um, you know make sure that that you get yourself out there as well as your project. I was going to ask you this later, but it feels apropos now. So, like, if you're getting upwards of seventy no's, or you know, upwards of eighty no's, how do you how do you persevere? How do you stay? afloat sort of emotionally and stick with the project and know that, you know, eventually you're going to get that yes. It can be really discouraging. And a lot of people just aren't going to respond. And that's frustrating Um, to send somebody an email, have a great meeting, say, oh, they, they wanted to read the script. Let me send it to them. And then nothing. That's really discouraging. But some people will read it and they'll say, this isn't for me, but here's some feedback. And that's really helpful. I mean, I really appreciate somebody spending 90 minutes of their time to read my script. 
especially when, as I said, the first draft got into IFP. It was not ready. It was really far away from being something that anyone should turn into a feature film. But there was a nugget of an idea in there that did appeal to people, and I clearly knew the world. So some people giving me feedback, it was sort of, it was sort of a development process. You know, like rejection was my development, and getting feedback from people, and then learning how to be a screenwriter through that process. And then the other thing that kept me going was something like the IFP selection itself. These are highly competitive selections where 700 people apply and 30 get in, or if, if you move further down the line, you go to the Sundance Labs, which we talked about last time, that's 2,000 people applying and 12 getting in. So even if you're not getting your movie made, if you are getting to some program somewhere, that can be really, really encouraging to help you to keep pushing. That's great. And I will mention that um, if people are interested in learning more about that script refining process, that's actually what the last episode of this podcast, episode two, was about. So folks can check check that out and sort of learn more about your ev- the evolution of your screenwriting process. Um, but you mentioned that you did get one important yes really early on from Chip. So tell us more about that. So I was actually just reminded on social media by the producer, Manette Louie, of this whole, of how this actually unfolded, because I had forgotten. And I've been off of social media for the last two years, which has been a really crazy time to be off of social media and to come back and and just not recognize the platforms or the country. I mean, it's been, (laughs) we could do a whole episode on this. It's probably why you seem a lot more sane than the rest of us. Yeah. Yeah. It's been interesting to come back. Um, But... So Minette reminded me on Facebook because we were talking about my movie being out there that the original way I met Chip was this. And this is a great, uh, this is a social media advocacy piece, not a uh, anti-social media story, which was that Minette and I were at a independent film conference called DIY Days, just an indie film thing that Lance Weiler was running. I think it was down in, I don't know if it was New York or in Boston. We were both in the same room tweeting lessons and takeaways from some presentation. And Barry Jenkins, who now has an Oscar, was on Twitter. And he saw the two of us tweeting some of the same lessons and takeaways. And then he tweeted at the two of us and said, you guys should meet. So the two of us looked up from our phones, looked around, recognized each other and said, oh, okay, Barry said we should meet. Then afterwards, we met and we talked. I had a project. She was a producer. She then thought of Chip Horahan, who had produced Frozen River, and introduced the two of us at a successive IFP uh, mixer, just a mixer. Chip and I met. He said, send me the script. I put him into my sales funnel (laughs) and (laughs) sort of assumed that maybe I'd send it and it would go nowhere. But Chip's based in Brooklyn. And he read it and said, I want to meet. So then I went down to his apartment and we met. And he said, I want to be involved. And what you're trying to look for in a producer is somebody with a track record and with credibility beyond your own. And as a writer, as a first time writer director, that's not hard because anybody who's made anything has credits and you don't. But for Chip, having won the grand jury prize at Sundance for Frozen River and having produced a number of movies, that was what I was looking for. It's pretty credible. Yeah, exactly. Um, So he was the first one on board, but he was certainly not the first one in that CRM software. I don't don't know what, how many people I'd pitched to at that point. So then from Chip on, like how many producers ultimately are on the film? We had three. I think these days that's probably pretty low. You know, there are some movies, I think, um, I think the Butler had 41 producers. 41. (laughs) So, so we had three, but, but, you know, that's one of the things about producing is it's a very amorphous title. It encompasses so many different things. So our producers were Jason Berman, Chip Horahan, and Mark Moran. Every producer does something different. And that's a really helpful thing to ask when you're meeting with producers because some producers are creative producers. They read scripts, they give drafts, they give feedback on cuts. They, they're your person in your corner that is just protecting the movie creatively and maybe less so in terms of what's financially viable. Um, some producers are more on the executive side in terms of they understand the industry, they have connections to financing, they understand agents and attachments of cast and all these kind of things. Other producers are physical producers. 
They know how to do a budget. They had a background in line producing. They can do a schedule. They can figure out how to get this movie actually made and in the can and then oversee the set and or, or oversee unit production managers and line producers because that's their background. Um, and then uh, some producers are, are sort of post-production people. Maybe they own a post-production house and they've accumulated credits on films because when a movie runs out of money during production and then still needs to do a sound mix and a color correction, they'll say, hey, you can come do that at our place and we'll give you this really great rate or you can do it for free if I get a producer credit. Other producers simply will make a phone call and they get a producer credit in an exchange because you really needed this cast member who was an A-list star or something and they made a phone call and this person did the movie and then they got a credit for that. So that's just the beginning of what a producer could do and they all get the same credit. And therefore, it's up to you to ask them, what is your strength? What can you bring to the table? How do you see yourself helping this project if you were to come on board? Because they all have the same different, they all have the same title, but they all do different things. And you want to build a coalition of producers who have uh, different complementary skill sets. And would those different types of producers ideally all come on at the same stage of the project or do they join at various parts or how does that usually work? I think every project is different. On this one, Chip was on early and we did a lot of drafts of the script and then took it around and pitched it to various places. Jason and I met through Sundance at the, it wasn't the Screenwriters Lab, but they do a producing summit and I was introduced to to him there in one of these speed dating environments, essentially. I mean, that's how I got to 80 people is that not just IFP twice, Tribeca once, Sundance once, and then all the other work of meeting people through emails and searching for them. So that's that's how you get to 80. Uh, but Jason was, was introduced to me by Sundance. And I think that was probably, you know, Chip probably came on around 2012, Jason around 2014. And then Mark was brought on once the movie was actually going to happen and we actually needed to make a movie as opposed to just trying to get financing and trying to take it around and everything. Um, You know, Mark came on a few months before we went into prep. So you have these three names, but but there are other people obviously involved kind of on the production side. Like, isn't Tony Parker an EP and Netflix... Like, how do they fit in in terms of producing credits? Sure. Again, every project is different. For us, we knew... When I first met Jason, I was telling him about it being a basketball movie and what I was trying to say about the world. And so he had done movies before with NBA champion Tony Parker and former NBA all-star Michael Finley. They had both been executive producers on Jason's movie, The Birth of a Nation which also won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance. So obviously I'm looking for producers who have credits and credibility. Um, And in this case, Jason particularly thought of these connections and thought they'd be appropriate for the project. We didn't know at that point that it was going to be a Netflix original film. So we approached them looking for executive producers more on the financing side of things. When we eventually got financing from Netflix, Netflix finances the movie. So we were looking for their reads on the script to make sure that we were getting the world right. They're obviously bringing a wealth of experience and knowledge in this world. And and my my chief objective was to portray this authentically. So that's where they came in. And then also just, you know, to have the credibility of NBA players as executive producers who can help promote it, who can help make connections. You know, those are the kind of producers that, that they were. I think that's interesting for anyone listening to sort of take note. You know, you've mentioned this a couple times, even in, as early as the Kickstarter stage, that you've got your sort of hands-on producers, the people that, that are going to make the project. But it's also important to have sort of like subject area experts or credibility, like credibility not just in the filmmaking side, but credibility in your subject side if you're doing an like area-specific type film. Exactly, because your name means nothing. And you'll see... Even if you don't have some of these people on early, a lot of times the credibility folks will come on board when the movie's done and going to a festival and, you know, Martin Scorsese presents and it's a movie by a first time director. Lee Daniels presents and it's not a Lee Daniels film, but he's lending his name to help this movie 
reach an audience. So you can find those people early or you can find them late, but it's a well-established method to trying to make there there be some association that an audience member is going to have with their significant other if they're going to go watch it. And if there are no stars in it and they say, who's in it? Oh, nobody. Well, who made it? Oh, nobody I know. You know, it's (laughs) it's a harder, uh, it's a bigger hill to get over than if you do have some recognizable names somewhere on your project. And from a press side, too. I mean, we get hundreds of press releases sent our way, especially around festival times. And, you know, I wish this weren't the case, but it's just true that if I get a press release that says, you know, Martin Scorsese backed project by director you've never heard of, I'm probably more likely to click on it than project by director you've never heard of. Exactly. Which uh, will be the title of someone should just make that (laughs) title of their film. Um, so, so back to your kind of core team of producers, how we've talked a lot about how, you know, they have to be with you for, you know, they have to be ride or die. You have to be ride or die with them. How do you know? I mean, early on, if it's, if it's a, you know, first you have your quick pitch, you're not going to make any, you know, firm decisions there, but then you have these maybe longer, more in-depth conversations. And how are you supposed to gauge, like, can I be in bed with this person for the next three, five, seven years. Well, it's good that you say in bed because, again, it is very similar to dating. You know, if you go on a first date or second date with somebody, you're probably not going to see their true colors and you need to spend more time with them to learn more about them. But unlike dating, I think in most cases at least, you can do reference checks of producers. (laughs) You know, in dating, you probably don't know somebody that's dated this person before. I mean, I guess in some cases you you might. Uh, But with producers... You know, directors talk to other directors, producers talk to other producers about directors. A lot of it is trying to, to see what they've made before. And if you know somebody that you trust that worked on a project with them and to go try to get some background info on what kind of person is this and how do they handle X, Y, and Z. And, and so much of the industry is filmmakers helping other filmmakers and saying, yes, work with this person or don't. Or work with this person, but be aware of X, Y, and Z. Um, that's a that's an area where social media can be helpful because you might not personally know another writer director, but you might have a friend in common, and just because you identify with the role that you are both occupying in the film industry, there's sort of a camaraderie there, and and uh, helping each other is a big part of um, you know identifying which teams are going to help you make your movie and get it to the finish line. That's a really good point. And to your point earlier, it's just not that big of an industry. So we can probably be one or two degrees of separation from someone that we could get advice from in a sort of, you know, off the radar, you know, not everybody has to know that you asked X person about X person's reliability. Right. I mean, LinkedIn is sort of a site based on that for other industries, not not quite as much film, but if you just go on IMDb Pro and if you've made stuff in the past and you have credits yourself and you click on someone's profile, it will say shared credits with this person. And it's kind of trying to help you, um, you know, make connections. But obviously, you're going to know more people in the industry than that you have in that shared credits section. But it is that idea of, hey, do you recommend this person? So before we move on to the big industry F word, <laughs> financing. <laughs> Um, is there anything else that you think uh, folks should know about kind of identifying, finding their their production team, their producers? Yeah, I think with most things, you can't look to others to be the way that this ultimately gets made or not. You're taking it upon yourself. You are, as the writer and director, a de facto producer on your movie regardless of whether you're a accredited producer and all that sort of thing. It's just like the person who's going to push the ball up the hill for years and not give up and do whatever's necessary. You know, you're not just writing and directing, you're taking meetings and you're trying to find financing and you're building a website or, you know, you're running a Kickstarter campaign, you're trying to get uh, equipment, you know, whatever it is that you're, that you need to do, you're going to do those things. So you're a producer on your movie. And if you're, hamstrung and you're saying, oh, if I can only meet this person, they would be the one to to help it. It's like you need to find out, you need to figure out what you can do just to get it to the very next step on this incredibly long staircase and not rely on other people. So you're a producer. So then ideally you've got 
one or two or, you know, a core team of producers that are going to help you move this ball forward. And one of the big things that that producers do theoretically are help get your financing. And, you know, there's all sorts of ways that financing can happen. But um, I think it's really confusing and even maybe getting more and more confusing um, because financing and distribution models are changing. And so it's it's like a big topic, the financing part of it. Um, I'm wondering, you know, early on, did you have any misconceptions about how film financing works? Yeah, I don't think I had a conception of how really? film financing worked. I didn't know anything about it. I mean, I ran a Kickstarter campaign for $115,000 and we, we exceeded it a little bit. But I, I had never, you know, I had done a DIY web series with no budget. I'd done a short with grant money where a lot of stuff was in kind. So I didn't have experience doing budgets. And I think a lot of writer-directors, it's like one of the first questions you get asked is, what's your budget? And it's like, how should I know? And uh, I didn't know anything about film financing, really. I mean, I tried to educate myself by reading books. But as you said, it's changing a lot. It's probably changed a lot since I was initially pitching this project. And what I learned about film financing in the independent world is that there's a formula just like there's a formula for studios. It might be different, but that traditionally independent films have been made for old white people. And the reason is not only are those the people that are going to the art house theater to buy a ticket, and if you can just go to any art house theater and look around at the audience, that's what the audience is being projected to be, but also they were traditionally financed by cast attachments and selling foreign territories. So if you get this recognizable actor, this actor supposedly draws an audience in Italy, in whatever foreign country, and therefore you can take this package, which is this director's attached, the script is based on this book, it has actor X, Y, and Z in it, and you can go sell a country's foreign rights before the movie has even been made or finished for X amount of money. So you raise enough through selling foreign territories that your movie, you've essentially removed the risk. You've now sold enough territories that you have your budget covered. You keep, you keep America as a territory that's free. So when you finish it, if you take it to a festival, then you can sell the U.S. rights for much more, and then your investors get paid back. That was sort of the traditional model. That's changed a lot because a lot of the international markets have dried up. And my movie did not ascribe to those things. This is a movie starring a 14-year-old black kid in every single scene. That was my objective with this film. That movie has not been made before. I'm going to give the entire film to this kid. He is the audience's point of view character. He's not going to be a huge famous actor. You know, there's not a famous 14-year-old kid that could play that role that is known. Well, and basketball is quite an American sport, isn't it? It's quite an American sport, but I... think that it's become so global that maybe in the time that I was pitching this at the beginning, it wasn't as much. And now it's it's really, really uh, catching on. And I think also the other myth that's been dispelled is that, you know, I mean, Black Panther blew away all these box office records and people had felt that cast that were predominantly minority would not be profitable, wouldn't reach an audience, wouldn't travel abroad, whatever it was, those were the things that we were also up against. So I had a youthful movie about an American sport that wasn't going to have, a, a you know, the biggest acting role in the movie was not going to be the most recognizable person, which is a difficult configuration to sell a movie. It's also about a 14-year-old, but it has realistic language in this world. It's not a movie for <laughs> 14-year-olds per se. So it, and it, by it, realistic, he means salty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, go go to any high school basketball game, and uh, you'll. We depicted it realistically, and I would actually say that I, I backed off quite a bit on what you would really <laughs> wow. you would really hear uh, realistically. But so so my movie didn't really meet the traditional indie film finance models, and I think in many ways, pitching it and hearing no so many times was me learning about why that is. And some producers and production companies were very frank about that. You know, they said, we really like the script, but this is exactly the kind of movie we're not trying to make because we've made it before with a kid as a lead and we lost our shirts and, you know, now we're trying to, to not do that. Um, I went in naively 
So I had every misconception about what fi- financing was, but I learned that. And as you mentioned, things have really been changing because Netflix and Amazon and Hulu and some of these other places have been financing films, whereas they would have been financed in the past via this sort of foreign territory, private equity approach. Now you do have films on, on the scale of amateur being made via larger players. So was there a point in this process where you specifically pivoted and said, okay, we're going to go after digital platforms? No. Thankfully, digital platforms started making movies. Mm. And so with to follow up on that foreign territory thing, if you're Netflix and you're in every country around the world except three or four of them, you want to have your content in every country around the world. But if you're going to a film festival like Sundance and you want to acquire a movie, but the way that that movie got made was they sold all these foreign territories, you can't buy those. Those rights have been pre-sold. So you, if you're Netflix, you need to get involved with the inception of these projects so that you can have it for everywhere and you know promote your platform and, and bring that value to the audience. So I've been pitching this project for years, and that was a really helpful development process for me to get no and then go back to the drawing board and do another draft. And we covered that in the screenwriting episode last episode. But I had gotten a couple of financing offers, and some of them were... You can have a financing offer that's not for the, for the full budget of your movie. It can be a partial budget. Some of them are called backstop deals, which is essentially like a distributor will will offer you a minimum amount of money for this movie before you've made it so that in case in case something doesn't go well so basically it's a worst case scenario uh, offer that you can then go to investors and say well hey listen we have this amount of money from this distributor as a minimum plus we know from our tax credit which we'll talk about in a second that we'll get back this amount of money so your investment you're not, you can't lose 100% of your investment here. You can only lose X percent of your investment, and there's all this upside. But for making a basketball movie, you need a pretty decent offer to be able to do sports action scenes with extras, and you know we're doing high speed, and uh, there's, there might be 100 people in the gym that you need to do one scene. So you need a decent offer, and I was developing the script with some companies that were interested, but the financing just really wasn't there. And then, thankfully, Netflix, who had made original series, said, we're going to start making movies. And that's where this took off with them. So just to sort of summarize this, these ideas, it sounds like a couple filmmaker takeaways are that if you definitely know you want your film attached to a streaming platform then you probably don't want to use the traditional model of pre-selling your foreign territories, for one. And two is that when we were talking earlier about how to find your producer, if you are not experienced in this area, you definitely want to talk to a producer who understands the ins and outs of of film financing and what the different options might be and what a good deal and a bad deal looks like. Exactly. And I think you as the first-time writer-director... This is a minefield that you're not going to have experience with. You can read a book, but you don't know all of the players. You don't know what industry trends have changed in the last several years. Like You're really looking to your producer or producers to help make connections and guide you through the process and be aware of the landscape and who has financing. And you know some, some companies do and others don't, and you'll be attaching more and more people, and maybe you're attaching people that can't actually help you get the movie made. So... You need to be careful about that and really rely on your producers there. Well, so and then, you know, related to that, you mentioned a couple minutes ago that you had no idea what a film budget looks like or what it should be. So how do you know? How does one know? Is that all producer or? Yeah, it's a little bit of a give and take. I think Chip's background, not only is he a creative producer, he'd also come up in physical production. So in terms of what does it cost to do this? How many crew members do you need? Doing a budget was something he'd done a lot. So we, we went through and we created different versions because the industry is so cast-driven that you might have a larger budget version, you might have a smaller budget version. It's sort of like the low, medium, high. Like, what's the least we could do this movie for without having to make a lot of script changes? 
um, you know, in the years since I'd run the Kickstarter campaign, I'd, I just kept writing. And the movie, it kept getting better, but it kept getting bigger. And the movie that I'd originally written myself uh, into a corner with was essentially trying to do a micro-budget basketball movie. And therefore, I kept writing around the basketball. We couldn't do <laughs> basketball scenes and the kid couldn't go out into the larger world. And the more I sent it to people, the more they were interested in those in the larger world and the things that I was saying there. So then it was like, okay, well, let me just try to write the best movie I can and then we'll find a budget. But I have to give that a shot because I can't, you know, making a first feature, you're already basically trying to make a movie with one arm tied behind your back. You don't have the experience, you don't have the budget. Uh, but then to be trying to do it on this micro budget, eventually it felt like I was trying to make it with two hands tied behind my back or I was trying to play basketball with two hands tied behind my back. That would not. That sounds tricky. That would not go well. So the script got bigger. And then with Chip, we were just sort of doing these different versions of like, what's the least we can make it for? What's the higher version if we do get you know, larger name actors attached and to have sort of our options covered so that when somebody said can you make it for this or can you make it for that, that we would have answers. But we didn't necessarily have an exact budget. We just sort of hit different levels to know what it would look like and to be prepared so that when we're talking to financiers and production companies, if they named a number, we wouldn't just be blankly staring back. You know, We would be prepared and we could say, oh, I think it's a little bit more than that, and so on and so forth. A couple of thoughts for people that might not have a producer on yet, too, or that you don't want to rely entirely on this, but there are lots of downloadable budgets on the Internet that at least you could get a sense for what are the budget categories. Like there might be things you might not even be thinking of budgeting for. And you're like, oh, right. I need like E&O insurance or something. Um, and then also you could potentially or well, let me ask you if this is something. Could you like hire a, a consultant or a freelance producer or like work with a, a line producer just to help you shape your budget, even if they're not attached to the project forever? Yes, absolutely. And a lot of line producers, when they're not grinding it out on set for 15 hour days, that's what they're doing is they're doing budgets for hire. Um, I've done that in the past, not not me doing a budget. I've hired a line producer to do a budget in the past. You know, um, So if you're the producer that you have on board your project first is not, if that's not their area of expertise, then either bring somebody on who's done it before or ask somebody you know for a budget from their film that they made that might be at a similar level. As you said, there are templates, there are programs, there's movie, mag movie magic budgeting. Uh, I think um, Studio Binder might have some, some budget templates film sourcing maybe there are just some that you're going to find that are sort of pre-filled that at least give you a reference point for as you said some of the things you might not be thinking of but also just kind of the ratios of, of what is a movie at a similar budget level spending on locations and costumes and camera and every movie is different some movies spend a huge amount i mean if you're doing a period piece and it's a costume drama obviously that's gonna be very different than my basketball movie where everyone's running around and dry fit sleeveless shirts um, but it can be helpful to look at others that have gone before you so then in your process I mean I'm sure folks listening are like okay that's all well and good I just want to get it on Netflix so um, obviously it's not that easy but they are spending an awful lot of, of money and time on original content so in your case how did you ultimately get the script to them and then and then what happened after that yeah, Jason, my producer, we were taking the project around in town in Los Angeles, talking to companies, and Jason got word that Netflix was getting into originals. This was this was really early. You know, there wasn't, I think at this point, there was a deal they had announced with the Duplass brothers, but it wasn't like they were, these, these were movies that they had bought the rights to before they'd been made, but I think they could be available in other territories and other platforms, that kind of thing. So it was really early, and, and none of us actually knew what it would look like. Like, what is a Netflix movie? Like, what is the plan? How does it come out? Does it go to theaters? Does it go to festivals? Like, when does it show up on the platform? Is it worldwide? Like, what are the rights? Like, we didn't have any of these answers, but they had made a lot of successful shows already, and those shows were really clearly finding an audience. And so it was really exciting just to go over there and take the meeting. And this was in their old office. You know, this was in, they were in a different office back then. I mean, everything was different. And uh, so Jason took the project to Ian Brick, one of the executives at Netflix, 
and he runs the, I think it's called the Indie Content Unit. There's a really great Q&A with him and his colleague Matt on IndieWire by Ann Thompson from Sundance this year, which sort of explains what they're doing. Um, but this was really early in the process. And so Jason sent them the script, and I went, I went over there. I gave them the pitch. By this point, hopefully I'm a decent pitcher. <laughs> 80th time is the charm. <laughs> and, you know, just, just sort of went through how I saw the movie feeling, what the visual configuration of it was. And a lot of my pitches focused on what basketball means to this kid and how we communicate that visually, which is that he exists in two worlds, on the court and off the court. And when we get to production and we talk about cinematography, we'll talk a little bit more about exactly how we portrayed this, but that essentially it's both a documentary-like cinema verite handheld off-the-court film and then a very cinematic, action-thrilling, elevated film on the court. So I talked about that, talked about who I potentially saw in the cast, and then Ian turns to Jason and says, let's talk deal points. And at this point, I've been said no to 79 times. Uh, you were like, excuse me? I was like, yeah, exactly. What? <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, is that how, is that how this goes? Because I'm used, I'm used to shaking hands and saying, oh, yeah, nice. I'll call you when I have something else. And, you know, nice to meet you. Thanks for the water bottle. And, um, and it was great. We were off to the races. Netflix was an amazing partner. They, you know, they did not come in and say, we need you to change this. We need you to change that. Like, the script was in a good place. They wanted to make that movie. And that opportunity was unique, I would say, among all of the different entities out there. Um, and they announced that Sundance 2016, that the movie had been financed. And it, it, it was crazy because it seemed like the end of a road that had been so long, but it was really just the beginning of a, the road as well. Right. I mean, it must have felt like a full circle moment because you had been part of the Sundance Screenwriters Lab with this script, and then it got announced... At Sundance. Yes. And that was really great because we did that Sundance podcast about the Sundance Screenwriters Lab that year. It was actually when we were launching podcasts on No Film School. And so it was really cool to be there with a couple of uh, several Screenwriters Lab fellows who had just come out of the lab and to be there interviewing them and them knowing that my movie had just been financed by Netflix. Like this is a this is a, a new option. Like this is a reality. This is something that wasn't available a few years ago. And... A lot of times, I think, on movies, when your movie is quote-unquote financed, you don't necessarily know the private equity source. A lot of people say they have money or say they're interested. And, you know, if, if the money is not in escrow, if this person says they're in but you haven't signed any paperwork, like there's a lot of ways that movies are quote-unquote financed, but they're not. Mm. And Netflix, and they finance your movie, they're financing your movie. They're Netflix. They're making more than anybody out there. You know, there's, they're, they're putting so many movies out and shows, and um, this is something that's going to happen. And that's what was really thrilling about that. I can only imagine. It's super exciting and I'm sure inspiring for a lot of our listeners. So then, like, wow, you know, you've, you've gotten the thing that you've been, you know, after for, for five plus years. It's the beginning of 2016. You're like, you've got your financing. And I guess this tees us up for the rest of this series, the first feature, because what what next? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's it's like you've accomplished something that you set out to do years ago, but you haven't accomplished anything. It's just a, a press release and the movie could turn out terribly. And it, as a matter of fact, now there's more pressure on you because a lot of first time features directors can go off and make their movie with their friends. And if it doesn't turn out well, Maybe you never put it out there. Maybe you just sort of, you know, privately screen it and then you learn lessons from that and you go make your next feature. And that's the thing that became the feature you're known for. And there's a lot of cases like that. Um, I was in a Lincoln Center program, the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Uh, actually, that was another place that I had met probably 20 producers and a speed dating thing. Um, and we had mentors there. And the mentor that I had been assigned, amazingly, was Doug Lyman, who did Swingers and The Born Identity and Edge of Tomorrow and so, so many movies across many, many genres. And, you know, he said, Swingers, 
his breakout movie wasn't his first feature. Mm. He'd made a feature before that, and it turned out terribly, and it never saw the light of the day. But he learned a lot from that, and a lot of the techniques he learned on that is how he was able to do swingers on such a low budget and shoot it himself and all those kind of things. So this is not that first feature. This first feature, it was a Kickstarter campaign. I have to make it. I have these backers. They're aware of it. Netflix has announced it's out there. So there's no hiding from it. This movie is coming out, and uh, you know there, there's only more pressure on on me because of that. And we can talk about what's next next time. Dun dun dun. <laughs> so yeah, I think our our next episode with Ryan is going to be about the sort of next steps in in prep, right? Like casting, location scouting. That kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And so much, so much of this is sort of a, a cash twenty-two, where you need one thing in place in order to do the other, and things are spilling over into prep that could have been done before, and you're still casting and all these kind of things. It's, it's a really interesting, incredibly busy time. Prep is incredibly important time for your movie, and we'll talk about it next time. All right. So we'll look forward to uh, talking to you next week. If you have questions about your own first feature or anything else about this process, you can email us at firstfeature at nofilmschool.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Ryan B. Koo. Liz? I'm on Twitter at Liz Film. And you can hear Liz on Indie Film Weekly every Thursday, which recaps everything that you might be missing while you're busy working on films, which is the thing that I listen to throughout this whole process. And we have interview podcasts that go up every Monday. And please make sure you're subscribed in apps. To the No Film School podcast. To the No Film School podcast. I I don't even know what some of the apps are out there because I was off of social media for two years. But Stitcher. iTunes, Stitcher. Those are the big ones. Pocket Casts. Yeah. Overcast. Yeah. (laughs) Wherever you get your podcasts, you can find the No Film School podcast. And if that turns out to be untrue, please let us know and we will get it there for you. Great. Thank you all for listening. See you next time. Bye.